Section 14 of Charles II by Osmond Derry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Scotland, Exile and Restoration, Part 7. At Brussels it was felt that the confusions of England tended but one way. A sensibility of miseries and a thought of no way to have them redressed but by monarchy, and that in the right line, begins to creep into most men's thoughts. The shifting scene of parties in England in December is admirably described by Broderick, who pertinently asked, Will a bone often dislocated thereby acquire firmness in the socket? And ever as the prospect of a conflict between Monk and Lambert became clearer, was heard Hyde's reiterated advice to have a little patience to sit still till they are in blood. The restoration of the Rump Parliament on December 26th gave small hope, since one of its first acts was to vote a new and most comprehensive abjuration of kingship and of the family of Stuart. But Charles had taken a fruitful step, when by Hyde's advice he had declared that he would confirm all the privileges of the city, and give still farther concessions, since he wished to own his restoration to the courage and devotion of the citizens only. The most powerful organization in the country was thus secured, while at the same time he gained the willing concurrence of Manchester, Northumberland, Ansley, Prynne, and many other leading Presbyterians. As Presbyterians they regarded Hyde as their salvation, since he was the only man that hath and will keep out popery and as men of substance they saw in him one who understood the law and would preserve property. Hope in the possible virtues of Charles had also much to do with the Presbyterian favor, and his friends were not left without ample assurance of these virtues. He hates not the vicious, but abominates their vices. He hates not the drunkard, but his drunkenness. He is the perfect pattern of piety, but more of patience a perfect enemy to all debauchedness. So wrote the author of Three Royal Cedars, and the need which was felt to keep up the farce is shown in the grumble of one impatient royalist. We are all commanded to be plaguy godly. On January 1st, 1660, Monk crossed the Tweed, and unopposed by Lambert, whose forces melted away as he marched, entered London on February 3rd what would he do? Once more, said Hyde, we can but wait God Almighty's time. The various episodes of that interval of hope and anxiety do not need repetition, and we may pass to the middle of March, when the controversy begins now to be rather upon what terms than whether the king shall be restored. The Presbyterian nobles demanded the Isle of White conditions, which would have established a dominant aristocracy rather than a monarchy. The city demanded the immediate recall of the king with an amnesty, satisfaction to the army, and settlement of religion by a council of divines. And underlying all politics, careless of terms or no terms, was the longing of men, and still more of women, for peace, for social peace. I pray God, wrote Penelope Denton to Sir Ralph Verney on March 8th, send me my life to see peace in our days, and that friends may live to rejoice each other. On April 15th, when the exchange was crowded, 
there came a fellow with a ladder upon his shoulders and a pot of paint in his hand and set the ladder in the place where the last king's statue had stood and then went up and wiped out that inscription exit tyrannus and as soon as he had done it threw up his cap and cried god bless king charles the second in which the whole exchange joined with the greatest shout you can imagine and immediately caused a huge bonfire to be made which the neighbours of cornhill and cheapside imitated with three or four more and so that action passed this melodramatic prophecy was followed hard by its fulfilment monk had at last made up his mind he put nothing on paper but bernard grenville committed the conditions to memory and carried them to the king they were less onerous than those of the presbyterians of the city but they especially urged the departure of charles from flanders into dutch territory that all fear of spanish interference might be avoided at the same time a paper of advice reached charles from lenthal the speaker he must be wary of the army and of the presbyterians he must yield to nothing prejudicial to his rights must temporize regarding the power of the sword tolerate catholics and all other religious parties keep his friends from boasting bind himself to nothing lest he be a mere doge of venice morley afterwards bishop of winchester had been employed to hoodwink the presbyterians the most unreserved testimonials to charles's orthodoxy had been secured from the protestant congregations in holland france and elsewhere on the continent while james sharp who came from the moderate scotch presbyterians clearly saw his account in assuring himself that presbytery would be safe but probably the most convincing evidence was afforded by the deputation of london ministers headed by mr case the story is indeed derived from a source so scurrilous that were it not entirely consistent with charles's humour we should hesitate to accept it mr case coming where the king lay was carried up into the chamber next or very near the king's closet but told withal that the king was busy at his devotions and that till he had done they must be contented to stay being thus left alone and hearing a sound of groaning piety such was the curiosity of mr case that he would needs go and lay his ear to the closet door but heavens how was the good old man ravished to hear the pious ejaculations that fell from the king's lips lord since thou art pleased to restore me to the throne of my ancestors grant me a heart constant in the exercise and protection of thy true protestant religion never may i seek the oppression of those who out of tenderness of their consciences are not free to conform to outward and indifferent ceremonies with a great deal more of the same cant all this in face of the reports which were spread by the king's enemies of his devotion to prelacy and even to catholicism was it was felt but a pardonable ruse de guerre another subject had now to be evaded as well as might be the longing impatience to know whether his majesty will condemn or save his blessed father's murderers i answer all parties that his grandfather never questioned the executioners of his mother but descending to particulars some members of the rump were content their fellows should be hanged they reciprocally of the same mind to every attempt to bind charles to definite engagements came hyde's steady and invariable reply 
no man is so tender of the nation as the king is and will do all he can to preserve it except it be to offer violence to his conscience or honour and they who believe he will buy his crown upon such conditions as would make him ashamed of wearing it will be deceived hyde's reward was now very near on april twenty fifth the free parliament met with a royalist majority on may first letters were read from the king to both houses to the army the city and monk they were dated from breda whither he had made a hurried flitting from flanders according to monk's wish barely in time indeed for the spaniards would have kept him until they had extorted promises regarding jamaica and dunkirk on may ninth charles was proclaimed king unfettered by any written condition three weeks later he entered his kingdom without the help of a single foreign soldier and except for the promise to spain to endeavour to repeal the penal laws against the catholics without a pledge to a single foreign prince hyde's triumph was complete none the less both he and charles knew that conditions did exist the failure to fulfil which would probably have relegated him once more to a wandering life among the courts of europe that this was so arose from the all-important fact that speaking roughly he was restored by those who had overthrown his father and who were responsible for his own exile the fleet the army the fortresses were in presbyterian hands england had it is true shaken off at length the military despotism by which cromwell had cut right athwart the most cherished traditions of english life like an unstrung bow she had fallen back upon her old ways of life she had restored her parliament and then parliament and monarchy being coordinated in the english mind she had restored her king this government was as natural to them as their food or raiment and naked indians dressing themselves in french fashion were no more absurd than englishmen without a parliament and a king but having thrown off first the despotism of charles i and then the despotism of military force the country had no thought of bending to another the new reign must take account of the feelings which had grown up during the overthrow and abeyance of monarchy that charles fully recognized the position was seen in his own words some months later to the house of lords when he spoke of those who brought or permitted us to come here the people might it was hoped be deceived by the professions made but made they must be the declaration of breda a monument to hyde's legal subtlety and clear perception of the whole field of strategy was admirably suited to the object in view by the most careful expression of deference to the authority of the parliament he trusted to lull suspicion until the king should be steady enough upon the throne to use his constitutional power of dissolution at a favourable moment when he would be able to secure a parliament more to his wishes the foremost question in men's minds was how far retaliation would be allowed free play had the restoration been the work of a victorious royalist movement the passions aroused would have been quenched the accumulated injuries of years avenged in torrents of blood but it was primarily the re-establishment of parliamentary government and thus it was that the declaration granted a general pardon to all who by any open act returned to loyalty and obedience within forty days 
excepting only such persons as shall hereafter be accepted by parliament it contained no demand even for vengeance upon the murderers of charles i a significant hint however was given in the letter to the speaker which accompanied the declaration if there be a crying sin for which the nation may be involved in the infamy which attends it we cannot doubt that you will be as solicitous to redeem and vindicate the nation from that guilt and infamy as we can be the question of the church was treated under the same conditions the presbyterians were looking forward with eager anxiety the anglican churchmen with exultant hope to quiet the one but in terms which might afterwards leave the field clear to the other charles proclaimed on his own account a complete liberty to tender consciences declaring himself ready to consent to such an act of parliament as upon mature deliberation shall be offered to us for the full granting that indulgence the resettlement of the land was next dealt with during the wars many estates had changed hands the crowned lands and those of church dignitaries had been confiscated by the commonwealth and sold about them nothing was said in the declaration as to private estates either granted away by the commonwealth or sold by distressed royalists the decision was left absolutely in the hands of parliament in another matter the declaration expressed how completely the restoration was one of sufferance it concluded with a promise to consent to any act of parliament for the full satisfaction of all arrears due to the officers and soldiers of the army under the command of general monk and to receive them into the royal service upon as good pay and conditions as they now enjoy the recognition of the absolute authority of parliament in questions regarding the church and the land the complete waiving of a desire for personal vengeance the satisfaction of monk's army these were the conditions under which charles was allowed to return to england at the hague whither he had gone on the invitation of the states charles tasted the first intoxicating delights of the astounding change which had in a moment translated him from the penniless vagrancy of a princely outcast to the glories of a throne they came to him first in the altered attitude of the powers which had alternately fed or starved him exalted or humiliated mazarin was foremost with his congratulations and the offer of either of his well-dowered nieces but the position of fontarabia was now reversed unstinted hospitality and a purse of six thousand pounds marked the change in the states who in fear of cromwell had dismissed him from their territory whoever is king of england they said were it the devil himself we must be friends with him money flowed in from all sides fifty thousand pounds came from the parliament with large presents for james and gloucester and pepys describes the naive delight with which on may sixteenth charles called his sister mary to come and gaze upon the money while it lay in the portmanteau it was as if a starving tramp had picked up a half-crown foreign ambassadors english royalists who had done much for him and many who were hoping to reap from soil where they had not sown those who had everything to hope and those who had much to fear parliamentary deputations church divines and presbyterian ministers crowded the hague schooled by hyde and aided by his own natural and acquired powers the king performed his part with all due observance 
from occasional outbreaks of his peculiar humour however he could not be stopped when a body of persons who had done nothing but shout with the crowd claimed audience he called for wine to be brought drank their healths with all imaginable courtesy and dismissed them with the remark that he was now even with them having as he thought done as much for them as they had done for him and in the midst of it all he found time and heart to send a letter to dear dear sister the sweet young girl to whom he had given all the love of which he was capable no absence he said nor any other cause could alter that love and none who were with him could ever share it he thanked her for the song she had sent him though he did not know whether it was pretty as jeannetin had not yet learned it and commissioned her to choose the trimming and feathers for his summer clothes on may twenty third surrounded by his relatives with every circumstance of florid pomp and with infinite shooting off of guns charles went on board the naseby rechristened after dinner by him with his own name the mere fact of being afloat as the anchor was weighed and with a fresh gale and most happy weather we set sail for england was enough to exhilarate the lover of the sea who had not been on salt water since he had landed at Fécon, a worn haggard and hunted man nine years before all that evening he walked the deck incessantly and told his eager listeners the story of the wonderful escape and it was long after pepys usual bedtime before he released his audience at daybreak on the next day but one the royal charles was close in shore at dover charles behaved like the philosopher he was he knew he had a hard day before him he sent for his brothers from their ships and the three sat down to peas and pork and boiled beef with the robust appetite which had shocked the grand mademoiselle when years before he had thrown himself upon the shoulder of mutton instead of trifling with the unsatisfying ortolan it was not until past noon that attended by his brothers in montague he rowed ashore in the ship's barge while pepys with a dog which the king loved was able to land at the same moment and see all that went on he saw the greeting with monk which showed that the successful soldier of fortune had placed his sheathed sword in charles's hand he saw the mayor give up and receive back again the sign of his office token that the civil power knew its lawful king he saw the solemn presentation of a very rich bible which with the ease born of his scotch experiences the king declared to be the thing he loved above all things in the world and so into a stately coach there set for him and so away through the town towards canterbury and for the present pepys saw him no more through shouting multitudes through divers gallant troops of horse in which the meanest rider was some gentleman of note through the foot regiments of kentish men he passed over barham down to canterbury slowly he rode along streets loud with music amid civic ceremonies and gifts to lord camden's house and there he sat down and wrote to his child sister thus i was so tormented with business at the hague that i could not write to you before my departure he had forgotten the letter we have quoted but i left orders with my sister to send you a small present from me which i hope you will soon receive my head is so dreadfully stunned with the acclamations of the people and the vast amount of business that i know not whether i am writing sense or nonsense therefore pardon me if i say no more 
than that I am entirely yours for my dear sister. And the next day and the next, from Canterbury to Rochester, from Rochester to London, through garlanded streets, through the sombre regiments, through bands of proper maids, clad all alike in white garments with scarves about them, who strewed his path with flowers, past conduits running wine, amid all the civic glories of the ancient city, amid the blare of trumpets and the blaze of colour and the thundering of guns, the wanderer of a month back rode to Whitehall at seven on the evening of the twenty-ninth, and received through the Houses of Parliament the allegiance of the kingdom to which Hyde's prudence and Cromwell's major generals and the force of old associations had, after more than fourteen years of exile, at length brought him. When Manchester, in the name of the peers of England, gave welcome to the desire of three kingdoms, the king excused himself for making an inadequate reply, so disordered by my journey and with the noise still sounding in my ears, but bade all be confident that next to the honour of God I shall study the welfare of my people, and shall not only be a true defender of the faith, but a just asserter of the laws and liberties of my subjects. England had become England again. A thing had happened, never read of in history, that when monarchy was laid aside at the expense of so much blood, it should return again without the shedding of one drop. And Evelyn was but one of thousands who stood in the strand and beheld it, and blessed God. It was the Lord's doing, for such a restoration was never mentioned in any history ancient or modern since the return of the Jews from Babylonish captivity. Another besides Charles entered upon a kingdom that night. There were those about him who studied his well-known tastes. After the receptions were over and the feasting done, the restored monarch, to whom the honour of God stood first, retired to rest, whether in the bedchamber at Whitehall or whether in the house of Samuel Morland across the water, in the exultant arms of Barbara Palmer. This abandoned woman came of good stock, she was the only child of William Villiers, second Viscount Grandison, who gave his life for the Stuart cause. Her mother was daughter of Lord Baining. Barbara Villiers was one of those happily rare women for whom unchastity has invincible attractions. Before she was sixteen years of age, she had given herself with zest and without the slightest reserve to Philip Stanhope, the second Earl of Chesterfield, and apparently not to him alone. In April 1659 she married Roger Palmer, a student at the Temple, who carried messages from England to Charles in February 1660. A little later we shall find him accepting an empty title as the price of his wife's public dishonour. But poor creature as he was, and suspicious as are many of the circumstances, there is no evidence that he was in the first instance privy to his preferment. It is noticeable that Chesterfield, who was still Barbara's lover, came with the king and the royal Charles. It was probably through his good offices that she secured the dominion which she kept almost unimpaired for ten years. The finest woman of her age, as she is described by one who did not love her, with the form and carriage of a goddess, an exquisite and petulant beauty, which carried conquest in every mood, and the triumphant freshness of youth and of buoyant physical health. She established from that moment an unquestioned despotism over the debauchee of southern blood for whom she was indeed a fitting mate. 
a despotism which suffered no weakening as every day she increasingly betrayed a coarseness of tongue a vulgarity of hate an insatiable rapacity and a promiscuity of vice which might have revolted the most fallen of her sex a despotism which was certain to fail when the attractiveness of her person began to wane but which failed only then End of section 14.